Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. And this is Jay. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for, God, what day is it? February 16th, 2022. <laughs> uh, halfway through the month of February, years flying by. Big week this week. Tons of great books. A lot of comic news this week, too, which reminds me, I should tell you guys, this news actually came out last week, but uh, because I just finished it a little while ago before Jay and I jumped on. Uh, I finished a chat with Jim Zub. So we had the new Thunderbolt series announced with the lineup and Jim gives us all the dirt. He doesn't spoil anything, but he gives us all the dirt on the way the lineup came together, what he's got planned for the book. We talked a lot about um, the art from Sean Isaacs. So look for that interview tomorrow on uh, Thursday's episode. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we've been having a lot of great interviews lately. Brian Michael Bendis was on a couple weeks ago. Jerry Conway a few weeks before that. Christopher Priest. We got more interviews coming up for you. Everybody wants to come on. It's I guess it's that time of year. There's not too many Comic Cons going on. Creators have a little bit more time. They're reaching out and we're happy to have them. So uh, likewise, the Daily Spawn continues. You guys are, numbers on that are going crazy. Everybody seems to want to help celebrate 30 years of Spawn with us. So we, uh, we really appreciate that. So that being said, let's go ahead and dive into the books because we got 14 of them for you this week. And I'm going to kick it off with A Man Among Ye. This is issue number eight. It's from writer Stephanie Phillips. The art is by Josh George. Colors by John Kalis. Letters by Troy Petrie. Uh, this finishes up the, the story of Anne, Bonnie, and uh, Mary Reed, female pirates that are real-life historical figures. Now, we talked to Stephanie Phillips about this series during the first arc, and she mentioned how there wasn't a lot of historical um, materials available to really know about the day-in, day-out lives of these female pirates. We know, obviously in that period, late 1800s, very rare to have a female pirate at all. So the fact that they were not only female pirates, but they were known and they've survived to be noted in history must have meant they were pretty formidable. So when you read this book and you see them taking out guys and escaping danger and just typically being basically badass women pirates, it's not that far-fetched, right? Like obviously Stephanie gets to tell whatever story she wants to tell, because again, there's not a lot of historical record for these two, but I really enjoyed the series. Uh, It comes to a satisfying conclusion. And in typical uh, top cow fashion, I guess you'd say it ends with a, the end dot, dot, dot question mark. I certainly would read more. Uh, Now the first series had a different artist. It was Craig Sermock on the first uh, four issues the second issue it's been josh george um and i i really dig the art i think both both craig sermock on the first arc and josh george on the second arc done a very very good job good storytelling beautiful colors from john Kalis. so uh, there's nothing not to like about about this book i mean it's a pirate comic there's not enough pirate comics out there the fact that they're real historical people only makes it more compelling in my mind. So uh, like I said, I, I really enjoyed it. If you're looking for some strong female characters, if you just want to get your fix on some cool pirate books, uh, check it out. It, the whole thing has been a pretty easy read uh, and there's nothing really like overtly brutal or horrifying or foul language or anything like that. So you could even, you know, maybe go down to like tweens in terms of um, who could read it. I wouldn't really go much lower than that, though, because there is some blood, sword fights and whatnot. But, you know, 
what you come to expect are pirates. There should be sword fights. But anyway, uh, that's my first book, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Hope we haven't seen the last of A Man Among Ye. Uh, all right, Jay's first book, The Amazing Spider-Man, number 89. It's continuing the Beyond arc with the Beyond board of Kelly Thompson, Cody Ziegler, Saladin Ahmed, Patrick Gleason, and Zeb Wells. Patrick Gleason is the actual writer of this particular issue. Mark Bagley, the classic Spider-Man artist on the pencils. Andrew Hennessy and John Dell do the inks. Brian Valenza on colors. And Joe Caramagna on letters. Now, I know Jay wasn't a huge fan of diverting from the uh, Queen Goblin story to go and check out Hobie Brown as the Prowler last issue, even though I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but we're back to Queen Goblin-y goodness here in this issue. And we even kind of get more of an idea of her origin. So what do you think of this issue, Jay? Well, you're right. I was looking forward to this. And uh, yeah, it wasn't bad. Like I said, I didn't. I appreciate it now that I read like a couple of times. Okay, I got it's good part of the story. It's good, but I was I'm glad they got went back to the Goblin Queen or the Queen Goblin. The next issue, I don't know what they're doing with, but hey, we'll, we'll see. But you're right; it, is, it gives you a backstory of her. Uh, we see more of Peter in this, you know, you know, finally, and uh, his uh, as he's trying to heal and get over his uh, illness. Um, and we see there's other couple of uh, heroes that have been uh, helping him along to kind of progress and get better. He gets challenged by a uh, black cat in it, which is pretty funny. Um, MJ's in this as well. Um, we get some more. Uh, I won't give it away, but there's a green. Uh, the Queen Goblin has like extra has other powers that we'll see in the story, which is pretty, pretty neat that she has these. And I really enjoyed it. And it was was cool. Um, they kind of mentioned because we know in the last issue, Ben just kind of took off. So we're kind of leaving with that question. I mean, what, what happened to Ben? So we'll see what they do next. But I enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the storyline so far. And uh, it's, it's not a bad villain. It's kind of neat to have a different one and, you know, see how. But it's cool. I enjoy it a lot. I yeah, I wonder, like people were speculating even before Wednesday came out, that book was already selling for like $15 on eBay just because it was the first appearance of a new character. It seems like first appearance of anybody now, speculators come out and drive the book up. It dri- and it, what it does, is it drives me crazy, it drives the price of the book <laughs> up. And it drives me crazy because based on what I've seen so far. I mean, she's fine, and you're right, that that interesting power that she has that other goblins before her haven't had could be something cool about her. But from what we've seen so far, this doesn't feel like anything more than a throwaway villain to me. Like she, It's not like right. you've created this, like the next Venom or, or next Carnage that's going to stick around for a long time. Like those guys felt menacing right from the start. It felt like they had something. This feels just like villain of the week to me now. And I don't say that to say that the, the, the writers haven't done a great job here. They're just, you know, like super derivative, right? How many goblins have we had? The first oh. green goblin, the second green goblin, the third green goblin, the hob goblin, the jack-o'-lantern, the demon goblin. You know what I mean? Like oh, there's yeah. been so many. Um, so, yeah, she's not really doing it for me yet. If she sticks around, she sticks around, whatever. Um, I'm more interested in what's going on with um, with Ben and you know, you mentioned it, how he ran off in the middle of the fight last time because he doesn't have those memories any anymore, those real formative, seminal memories of uh, with great power comes great responsibility and what have you. So with what the hints that we get in this one about what's going on with Ben, I wonder how, how self-aware he is that something's wrong. So that's that's the compelling part for me. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. 
the goblin is, you know, whatever. I mean, there's no part of me that thinks that this queen goblin is going to defeat Ben or Peter and Peter's still in somewhat of a weakened state. So we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. I'm definitely enjoying amazing Spider-Man much more than I have in, in quite a long time. Oh, definitely. Uh, okay. Up next, I have a series, the uh, final issue of a series that I have talked about every single issue because from the first issue, it has impressed me. It has been fantastic. I don't hear hardly anyone talking about it other than me. Um, I hope more people are reading it. I can't wait now that the final issue is out to have a little bit of time to sit down and read all 12 issues together in one sitting. When I will have that time, I don't know because I'm so busy right now, but I will make that time soon within the next couple of weeks. Uh, and the series is Deep Beyond. Uh, it's written by David Goy and uh, Mirka Andolfo. Sorry, I'm, I'm just looking for the credits here. I know that those are the, oh yeah, see, they don't even put the credits in here. Uh, that's frustrating. I have to try to do it from, from memory. Um, sorry, I'm just double checking. Uh, the art is by Andrea Brocardo and the colors are by, by Barbara Nascenzo. Um, so in this final issue here, we get, I don't want to say it's like expositional or dialogue dumps, but <laughs> the, the funny thing about this book is that it's so intricate that even some of the people, even some of the characters in the book don't always realize what's been going on. And so when it all gets kind of laid out here, it's, it's one of the characters is explaining it to the other characters. This is what's been going on. This is the secret that's been kept. And so they're not only learning and then we get their reactions, but we're learning as well. So it's almost like the whole, not the whole story, but a good chunk of the motivation behind the story and what's been happening with the world, why the world is poisoned, why they're in a post-apocalyptic state. All of that is laid out here. It makes really good sense. And even though I know that now, even though it's revealed in this final issue, so going in, when I do my reread, I'm going to go in with that knowledge. And in a way, it's going to be spoiled. But I still got to experience the reveal of it. But now when I go back and reread it, I'm going to reread it the second time with that knowledge of what's going on in the background. And I think it's going to add to the story even more. So I think this is a an a story that has like a readability for multiple times because it is so intricate of a story. So I, I really loved it. It ends on a, a hopeful note as well. And it, it's truly an ending, not to say they couldn't tell more stories if they you know, wanted to in this world with different characters, but it's not necessary. Like this is a, a whole and complete story in and of itself with Really great art, um, great color work, very bright, especially for somewhat of a post-apocalyptic tale. So I do recommend it. It's If you like science fiction, if you like end of the world type stuff, this will be right up your alley. A lot of action, a lot of po uh, politics and political intrigue and whatnot. It's just so good. It really has it all. Big, I'm a big fan of it. So check it out. Uh, all right. Up next for Jay. We have, well, let's skip that one because that's your book of the week. 
We'll save it for a little <laughs> later. Uh, let's go with the final issue of Primordial uh, from writer Jeff Lemire. Andrea Sorrentino does the art. Dave Stewart on colors and Steve Wands on letters. All I got to say about this uh, little series is it's been fun. Um, this last issue went by so fast. I actually read it twice. I thought I missed something because there wasn't a lot of dialogue in it, but it had a huge eff- like, uh, effect of how they put it together. So in the last uh, issue, we know that uh, Abe got hurt and got shot, but that all plays out in the story. It's, it's uh, you know, they find out that these animals that are in this uh, alien ship actually have a, a, a gift that they figure out. They, they remember that they have, that they use. The artwork is just beautiful. I don't know how else to, to explain it. It's just uh, gorgeous. It's not a lot of uh, color except for like, I guess the ship is kind of distorted, but it's, uh, I didn't realize it was actually, they came to a point where it was actually like a, a story about love and your love with your animal and your pet. It was, it was kind of neat. The ending was like the best part, the final panel. It's like, okay, I, I get it, you know, because if you're a pet lover, you, you get that, you, you know, and you're trying, you know, it's just, it was heartwarming. I loved it. And uh, I'm glad it's, I'm, I'm sad it's over, but it was a great ending for it, I think. It was a good way to tie it all up. Yeah. I don't want to say there's not a lot to the story uh, because I think it's more complex than it first seems. But right. it's another one of those, like I was just talking about Deep Beyond, where it really pays off in the end this is the same thing. Like now that we have the whole, now that we have the whole story of primordial, it's like, okay, now, now let me go back and reread the whole thing with the knowledge of what happens at the end. And it's going to read differently. The other thing about this book is I almost feel like Jeff Lemire is like, what, what story could I not tell without the perfect artist, right? Like maybe he had the idea for the story, but he's like, the only person I can tell the story with is Sorrentino. He's the only one that, you know, his specific style and aesthetic, he's the only one that can do this story. And, and he nailed it because oh, yeah. from the, from the detail in the animals to the lush backgrounds, especially when they're in natural settings, you know, forests and whatnot. But then he juxtaposes that against all this, sort of alien, really um, sort of clinical and barren minimalist design sense of like alien ships and whatnot that just seems so like cold and, and yeah, alien for, for lack of a better term. So yeah, that that series, uh, that series nailed it for sure. Uh, All right. Up next for me is Devil's Reign Superior Four number two from writer Zach Thompson David Tinto does the art, Matt Miller on colors, Ariana Mare on letters. Uh, like, what can I say, right? I couldn't spoil it when I was talking about the first issue, Devil's Reign Superior 4, but I can now. I can talk about the first issue with spoilers because this is the second. So the Superior 4, that term comes from like Superior Spider-Man, which was Dr. Octopus taking over Peter Parker's body. So the Superior 4 are different versions of Otto Octavius from the Marvel multiverse who've taken over different heroes. And then they've teamed up to become uh, like a version of the fantastic four, I guess you'd say. So back in the day in the nineties, some, uh, some really popular Marvel heroes teamed up to do, to become a new version of the fantastic four for a few issues. I think three issues of the uh, three issues of the fantastic four. And it was Spider-Man ghost Rider, Hulk and Wolverine. So who do you have Dr. Octopus as here? So you have the regular Otto Octavius, who was at one point Spider-Man, but then you have 
an Otto Octavius from another world who's become Ghost Rider. He's taken over Ghost Rider's body. You have an Otto Octavius from a different reality who's taken over Wolverine's body. And you have an Otto Octavius from yet a different reality who's taken over the Hulk's body. So you have these four Dr. Octopi that have teamed up, but only one of them is in his actual Otto Octavius body. And then you've got a Ghost Rider Doc Ock, you've got a Hulk Doc Ock, and you've got a Wolverine Doc Ock. And they still have the arms, but like the Hulk Doc Ock's arms are like, you know, giant Hulk arms that look like, you know, from gamma radiation. Whereas Wolverine's Doc Ock's arms are like metal with like claws, you know, adamantium claws on the end. And of course, Ghost Rider Doc Ock's arms are chains because it's Ghost Rider and chains, right? So it's just so much fun. Uh, it's just so much fun. And on top of that, you, you that's just the, you know, the great, great idea that, uh, that Zach Thompson came up with. Then you have the actual story where this is ties in with Devil's Reign, where uh, Kingpin gave Dr. Octopus, basically gave him the Baxter building and said, hey, make sure that nobody can get, you know, none of the heroes can get in there and get any of the weapons or technology or whatever. So Doc Ock takes advantage. He uses the forever gate. That's the way he finds these other guys. And they're going around and they're killing other Otto Octaviuses in the multiverse because every time they kill an Otto Octavius, it's kind of like the Highlander, right? There can be only one. So you kill one and you get the power. So when they kill another Otto Octavius, supposedly the remaining ones get smarter. So while they're doing this, there's a there's another Otto Octavius who supposedly is the greatest one. You know, he's he's a version of Dr. Doom. Again, not spoiling. This was in issue one. He's a version of Dr. Doom where Doc, Dr. Octopus took over Dr. Doom's body. But this Dr. Doom didn't lean into the science at all. You know, the, the like the Dr. Doom from 616, he he uh, messed around with some sorcery trying to rescue his mom from Mephisto, but he was really more about technology and science. That's not the case with this, uh, with this Victor Von Doom that Doc Ock takes over. He leaned, leaned into the sorcery all the way and he's all about the magic. Uh, and he realizes that this superior four is going around and killing Otto Octaviuses, And he's like, no, that that's not going to happen. Uh, these guys are, are trying to get powerful. They may rival me at some point. I'm the greatest octopus. And so this second, issue is all about that uh, supreme octopus battling these other superior octopi. And again, it's just really fun. It's really fun. And it spins out of devil's reign, but I almost think it doesn't need the devil's reign subtitle on it because it doesn't really tie into devil's reign in terms of the, what's going on in the actual devil's reign storyline on the streets of New York. Um, but that being said, I'm glad that it exists because it's a whole hell of a lot of fun. And if you haven't seen, seen David Tinto's art before you're in for a treat, it's beautiful. It's dynamic. It's um, a little bit of an animation style. Uh, he, he did the uh, Commanders in Crisis series that Steve Orlando wrote that we talked about extensively on the show. Um, but yeah, I, again, this is just a lot of fun. I would say you could pick up uh, Devil's Reign Superior 4 without reading any of Devil's Reign and without reading any other Marvel books, it's that continuity light and that self-contained that you could just pick it up and read about four Dr. Octopi teaming up. It's a hell of a lot of fun. So, uh, all right. Up next for Jay, we have a book both of us have really been enjoying. 
It's A Righteous Thirst for Vengeance, number five. It's from writer Rick Remender. We've got art by Andre Lima Arajo. And colors are by, well, I'm not going to say colors are by Chris O'Halloran. He does the cover colors, but I'm not sure if he does the colors on the inside. Yes, he does. He does the colors on the inside. And then Russ Wooten uh, does the letters. So uh, what'd you think? Action ramped up in this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were talking before we uh, went to start recording. Uh, this one actually has a lot more dialogue and we're getting a lot more of the uh, the story, which is uh which is great. I, they had me like for the first issue, it wasn't much words, but I was so hooked because I, you know, it's recommended. you like, okay, let's see what's going to go with it. And I'm glad I stuck around because it got really, really good. Uh, so this one, we got uh, Sonny, who's uh, no skill set whatsoever, but just, you know, trying to help out. He's with, uh, uh, was it uh, the son Xavier and uh, what's the girl's name? Uh, Nadia, I think. Is that right? I'm not sure if I say her name right. But anyway, he's trying to save this the, the mother and daughter, and that's that's his whole mission right now. He's trying to help them out. He has a pretty good idea how to like uh, help them out. You know, get you know, try to reset. Um, it's a fun ride to get to that point where he tries to figure out how to do things. But of course, since he's not like a superhero, has any skill sets to be you know like military or police officer or whatnot, things kind of go sideways for him. Um, the ending is really good in this one because you're like, wow, okay, what's what's going to happen next? Because we got another character introduced. Um, a lot of things happened before that point. It's just been a really fun ride so far. And now I'm like more hooked to the story. I want to know what's going to happen next now. So he got me. So it was a good writing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this has been a really fun book all along. And it's been one of those books that really shows you the power of, of storytelling, visual storytelling. Oh, yeah, the artwork is beautiful. Yeah, because Andre Lima, his storytelling, you know, we haven't needed the dialogue. And even here, the dialogue's a little more needed because, you know, when when our uh, our main guy, what's his name, Sonny, when he goes in and he meets certain people, it's not, I mean, it's it's apparent who they are in the context of their setting, but the fact that they have secrets and they do other things that aren't readily apparent, you sort of need for the first time, you really need more dialogue. And so that's why the dialogue is here, but in all the action scenes where cars are blowing up and people are getting shot and all that stuff, you'll notice there's like no, almost no dialogue. It, it Remender knows how to get out of the way and let Andre Lima uh, do his job. So yeah, I, I expect this one to get nominated for some Eisner's it's, it's just a gorgeous book. Uh, okay. Up next, I have another Marvel book. It's Fantastic Four, number 40. It's uh, written by Dan Slott. Art is by Rachel Stott. Jesus Arbatov on colors. Joe Caramagna on letters. This is, um, I guess, part two of the Reckoning War. Last week, we had Reckoning War Omega which introduced the concept and we saw Reed Richards gain a, a ton of knowledge by basically taking the equivalent of a hard drive that belonged to the watcher and plugging his brain into it. And he downloads all this information and now he knows how to like the best strategy to stop the reckoning war and, and this and that. So what the reckoning war is, it's something that, um, slot has been teasing for like over 20 years now 
that She-Hulk was going to cause this reckoning war and it was going to be the end of everything. And so we finally learned in um, Reckoning War Omega what it is. So apparently the Watchers have an original sin of their own, which was when they first like gained their power and kind of ascended or whatever, they, they went to a certain race and they wanted to help that race ascend and, and advance like, much like their own race had. And so they gave them a bunch of their technology and their knowledge. And what that race did was they used all that knowledge and technology to create a bunch of weapons and started warring on the rest of the galaxy and subjugating it. So that's when the watchers, they stopped those people. And then they said, okay, we have to make a vow never to interfere again. We'll only watch. That's why the watchers are the watchers because they, they felt so terrible about the fact that they had basically were the reason that this, uh, this group of aliens had the technology to conquer other aliens. Well, now that original race has escaped their um, their imprisonment and they're out for revenge. So once again, now it's not just one race that has the Watchers technology and weaponry. That original race has gone and, um, and armed a bunch of other races, the Badoon and all sorts of other, the Kree, all these other alien races. And now all of the galaxies at war with each other. There's all these different factions. So how is it all going to play out? How is Reed's newfound knowledge that he gained from the Watcher going to come into play? Like there's a lot of moving parts here. It's a big story. I'm sort of surprised it's not crossing over into more books. I think it's it's only crossing over into the new She-Hulk title that just started and Fantastic Four. And then I think there'll probably be some, some one-shots. Uh, but it's big and it's cosmic and it definitely feels like an event. The art by Rachel Stott is really solid. Um, the colors by Jesus Arbatov have been fantastic throughout his entire run on, on Fantastic Four. I always talk about how if you want a book to look really sort of classic, super heroic, you, you use primary colors. They're not muted. You don't go too into pastels, whatever. You keep them really bright and really primary. And Arbatov does that. So I'm so on board with this. You know, I'd heard of the Reckoning War over the years and I, I went back and forth on it. Like, are we ever going to get it? I didn't think we would. Then I kind of didn't care. But now that it started, I'm like, oh, my God, this is like this is a really good idea that Dan Slott has come up with. And it's something that goes back to the very roots of the Marvel 616 universe. And he's able to do that without going and changing a bunch of stuff without having to retcon a bunch of stuff. That's what I don't like, you know, like when, uh, as much as I love Scott Snyder coming up with the idea of court of owls, while that concept's really cool. The problem I have with it is it assumes that Batman is nowhere near as smart as we've been led to believe the fact that the court of owls has been able to exist right under his nose in, in Gotham for his entire career until he, until they reveal themselves to him or this idea that Rogel czar was the one that was responsible for Krypton blowing up. I've been reading Superman comics for 80 years and I'm just now finding out that it was Rogel. Well, I'm just now finding out because some writer just now came up with the idea to go back, but you see the problem, right? Wait, I've read all these stories that Rogel czar wasn't in about Krypton blowing up. So I'm just supposed to ignore those. So you see what I'm saying? But what Dan Slott's done is he's managed to come up with this cool idea that doesn't contradict anything that's come before. It, it fits in perfectly. So kudos to him. It's a really fun, big event that's going to have 
some lasting consequences, I think. So we'll see how it plays out. All right. Speaking of big and different dimensions and whatnot, Jay's next book is Hulk. We're up to issue number four. Uh, it's by Donnie Cates and Ryan Otley. That's how they're credited, just by Donnie Cates and Ryan Otley. Uh, Cliff Rayburn handles the inks. Frank Martin on colors. Corey Petit on letters. Um, what do you think? It's uh, it was interesting. We got the USS Hawk uh, flying full steam and Earth one two two. I mean, there's no that's where he's at. Uh, from the last issue, we know that in this Earth, um, the president is General Ross, which is yeah. like. Bad All right. Bad news, I guess, you know, how he is. Um, but apparently in this world, uh, it's every, everything's different. Um, there, there's not, a lot of heroes don't exist in this world. Um, I guess the primary element in, in this is gamma. <laughs> That's all they have is gamma. Everything's gamma. And I guess in this new world. Yeah. Well, I mean, the gamma test was successful. And right. Bruce, like Rick Jones never drove out on the bomb site. The gamma test was successful. Bruce Banner helped develop gamma technology. Everything's powered by gamma. So yeah, they, everything's, everything is different. It's really weird. <laughs> but it's interesting how some of the heroes ended up the way they ended up in that world. What I do get a kick out of the story is how uh, Bruce will like, like uh, shift the space Hawk into different gears and what he's got to like endure in the, I guess, in the chamber of horrors. So it was nice to see a little surprise of those characters. Like, oh, yeah, I haven't seen them for a while. So it was nice to see them pop up. The best part about it, I think, was the, was the ending because we're like, well, was all the heroes? But we found out there is one character from the our world that's still in this world. But what happens to him is kind of uh, grotesque, <laughs> to say the least, and what they did to him. But uh, the next one should be a pretty cool uh, fight scene, I think, between uh, our Hawk and the other hero, I guess you can say. Yeah, I kind of rolled my I kind of rolled my eyes at this. I mean, it feels I mean, it's a thing like Donny Cates. He the guy loves comics, uh, but for me, his comics don't always land because it feels like a lot of times that what he's doing is, is very much fan service, you know, like, ooh, what if this guy fought this guy? But this guy was like irradiated like the Hulk or this. You know what I mean? Like, it oh, doesn't. Yeah. It, it feels like a what if we were talking about that. It felt yeah. like a what if uh, series. Yeah, exactly. It's like I don't the, the motivations and whatnot behind the story are, are at this point what interests me more. And we haven't gotten much of that. So and and I'm not really that big of a fan of Ryan Otley's style. For me, it worked on Invincible, but it it, it feels a little static to me. It doesn't flow as much as I wish it did. Um, his storytelling is great. But it's just his figure work for me that doesn't always land. Um, but where his where his art shines is in the quiet moments. But that's so not what Donny Cates does, right? Like, I would love to see Ryan Otley draw a book where it was like just two guys sitting in a room talking to each other. Because Ryan does emotions in the face like really well. And he makes interesting choices when it comes to like cropping off half of the face or just zooming in on an eye or a mouth for a reaction and that kind of thing. Like I, I totally would read a book that, that Ryan drew like that. But again, that's not at all what Donnie does. Donnie does like, you know, pedal to the metal, all out action. So, it, and I'm not saying that Ryan's not the right artist to be drawing the story for Donnie. It's just what my favorite parts of Ryan's art are. Those aren't the parts of 
his of Ryan's art that are going to be stressed in a Donny Cates book. Donny Cates is going to give us a bunch of action and big giant concepts and crazy mashed up characters and and whatnot. And you know, to Ryan's credit, he nail he he nails all of it. Like he does it, but again, it, that's not my favorite part of Ryan's art. So for me, it's like eh, I don't know if it's getting there. Uh, I wanna I wanna like this more than I than I do. And I do recognize my bias. Like I've talked so much about wanting a normal, what I call quote unquote, a normal Hulk book. Cause it's been forever. You know, we've had like five years of a um, mortal Hulk. And before that Hulk was dead. And it's just been a long time since we've just had, okay, banners out there on the run or banners actually in control of the Hulk. And he's intelligent. Like, you know, maybe I'm just pining for my Peter David run, Peter David days, but I can go back and reread my Peter David run. Uh, so, uh, you know, let Donnie do his thing. People do seem to be enjoying it. Uh, okay. Up next for me, uh, just real quick. I'm going to cover this. It's a new number one. So I wanted to talk about it. It's the new, um, it's the new iron fist. We know Danny Rand in the recent Larry Hama series gave up his uh, power as iron fist. So we have a new guy who's iron fist now who's gotten the power in a different way. Uh, and this story is written by Alyssa Wong, Michael Yeeg. I am probably pronouncing that incorrectly. It's YG is, is the last name. Uh, so apologies, Michael, if I'm mispronouncing that. He does uh, the uh, the line work, J. David Ramos on colors and Travis Lanham on letters. So like I said, it's, a, it's sort of a different take on Iron. It's a character that we saw recently I want to say in, I can't remember if it was in Death of Doctor Strange, the, the White Tiger Death of Doctor Strange, or if it was in the, uh, the Black Cat Annual, but it was one of those. Um, this guy is a, an Asian hero who was a sword wielder and his sword got destroyed and everybody was shocked when the sword got destroyed and part, part of the sword, part of the shards of the sword got embedded in his hands and that's part of what's giving him this Iron Fist-like power. Uh, and he's going around trying to uh, collect the rest of the swords and keep it out of the hands of of evil. Uh, but we do have plenty of Danny Rand in here because he runs into this new Iron Fist. And obviously he has questions. He's like, I think you're an Iron Fist, but you don't seem to be all there with the power yet. And you wonder if Danny Rand regrets having to give up the power. So there's that legacy feel to the story as well. Uh, I thought the art by Michael Yeag was very strong. Uh, color works good, line works good. So yeah, the first issue sucked me right in. So if you're a fan of Iron Fist, definitely pick it up. And I, I don't know, speculator alert. I mean, it's not the first appearance of this character, but it's the first appearance of him as Iron Fist. So you might want to pick it up for those reasons. Uh, okay. Up next for Jay, we have uh, another book that's really one of our favorites here from Image. The Silver Coin, issue number nine. This one was written by Vita Ayala. Michael Walsh does the line work and the lettering, colored by Tony Marie Griffin and Michael Walsh. And this one was uh, this one was really solid. What do you think, Jay? Oh, yeah. It was uh, dark, I guess, in the sense of the, what was going on. But it's pretty much uh, the coin likes to wield its magic to make people do evil things and to give it blood, you know, by killing. 
this one just focuses around a, a detective who's a cop who's crooked, you know, because he owes debts and everything. But he just becomes an arsonist in the story. That's pretty much it. It's just the vile things he does to satisfy that coin. You know, it's just so creepy. The ending is I, I would like to call it was just desserts, you know, and the uh, coin, of course, will move on and find its next victim. But what I like about the series a lot is like each one's very unique. It still focuses around the silver coin. We got some backstory of where it came from, but we get little tidbit, you know, little pieces here and there of what were the origin of the coin. But I like that because it keeps the readers, you know, guessing and want to know more. But they're like the top, like the Twilight Zone or the you know Tales from the Dark Side. I just like the stories, but they're just so some of them are really dark. Uh, like I think the one we had last time where people were like killing themselves to get that coin, and this one is just uh, one character, but it's just you know, like I said, it's very vile what he does because you know you're supposed to trust these people. You know, especially cops, but not this guy. But I, I, I do like the, the the darkness around it. It's a good, solid story. Yeah, I was a big fan as well. I love the setting. This one—that's the thing about this, these uh, silver coin stories—they run the gamut. Like Somerset in the future, Somerset in the past, Somerset way, way in the past. Um, this one's in the 1970s. And what I loved about it was Vita Ayala. They're from New York, and I—I I think they live in the Bronx, actually. Um, and it, it's interesting because that's where a lot of this takes place. And they even give us a little essay in the back entitled the Bronx is burning. That gives us some historical accuracy talking about New York in the 1970s and explaining where that phrase came from. The Bronx is burning because there's, uh, has its roots in like real true historical events due to falling property values in New York, in the Bronx. And a bunch of people were burning their own real estate for the insurance money. So I appreciated that because it gives more context to the story that, uh, that we, uh, that we read ahead of that. So yeah, fantastic. And great artwork by, um, by Michael Walsh. He, he, you know, he brings in a different writer each time. Um, but the art stays consistent because he does all the line work and the coloring. So, um, well, uh, he does the line work and the lettering, sorry. Uh, so that adds a consistency to the book. Big, big fan of, uh, of silver coin, you know, some, some issues I like better than others. This was, I mean, they're all good, but some are great. This is one of the great ones. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, okay. Up next, I have a book from aftershock. It's, uh, one of two aftershock books this week. It's, uh, oversized. It's like 48 story pages, I think. And it's also in an oversized format. Uh, kind of like the DC Black Label books. It's called The Lion and the Eagle. Uh, it's written by Garth Ennis. PJ Holden is the artist. Matt Miller does the colors. Rob Steen does the letters. Um, and that that name, The Lion and the Eagle, comes from a nickname that the British troops in India during World War II had, um, that they were an eagle when they'd be attacking in, in the air and they were lying on the ground. Uh, but there were a lot of problems. There were a lot of problems for the British forces and the Chinese forces in India fighting the Japanese forces in the war. And it's something that's that's really forgotten. I think for the most part, certainly in this country, I don't know how it is in uh, Great Britain or the UK, but certainly in this country, when you talk about World War II, we have a very Eurocentric viewpoint. Um, and it's probably because that's where we did most of our fighting. And we did have a lot of uh, air combat in the uh, in the Pacific theater, uh, 
and some naval combat there and you know battling battle midway and that sort of thing but the the portion of the war that sort of captured everybody's imagination of movies and tv shows and stories and whatnot they all focused on the european campaign and so i think people forget this wasn't you know the battle of europe this was world war ii the world was at war there were campaigns in africa there were campaigns in the uh, pacific theater like i mentioned europe and also in india um where the japanese were doing horrific things and so uh, I, I know Garth Ennis is a big fan of World War II, or not a fan, that's not the right word, you know, like he's clapping for World War II, but he's a big uh, World War II uh, aficionado. He understands a lot about the history, and he's he's very well read. Uh, he's written a lot of stories. And for my money, nobody writes a better war comic than, uh, than Garth Ennis. So I like that he's taking on this lesser known story, this lesser known area of World War II. Maybe it'll educate some people. I mean, I certainly learned quite a bit reading it that I wasn't aware of. So that, along with the great PJ Holden art, makes this a, a must read in my mind. Um, beautiful art, great dialogue. I mean, it's focused on British troops in India and, you know, Garth Innes being from the UK nails the the language and the slang and that sort of stuff really, really well. So um as always, Aftershock is uh, is nailing it with a quality book. Okay, up next for Jay, we have Time Before Time. This is issue number 10. It's written by Declan Shalvey and Rory McConville. Joe Palmer on art, Chris O'Halloran on colors, Hassan Otsman Elhow on letters. Uh, I don't know what it is, is lately about books hitting issue 10 and all of a sudden like turning the dial up to 10 but this was my this was my favorite issue of the series so far oh i totally agree it was so much going on and we get so much more of uh i guess the backstory of everything that's going on um this one it's the year now 29.99 so we find out in the 30th century 30 was it 30th 30 30th century there's a another group that actually controls it so we kind of see uh where the uh these pods come from we, we meet the man behind the curtain so to speak but there's some backstabbing, of course, that goes on. Um, that's one part of the story. There's three stories going on in this issue. You got that going on uh, with the with you know the syndicate and the union uh, fighting. Then you got to go with uh, Tessu and him trying to stop his friend from trying to trying to change time. You know, even though we know from previous issues, you can't change timeline. Whatever is set is set. There's no way to change it. And they also got Nadia who's trying to find her family because they're not supposed to be in a certain time that he that she thought they would be. So they're somewhere else now. We find out in this, you'll find it's pretty cool. And then we got another one was that Kevin the robot, which we have no idea where he, where he's really from or anything yet. But he gets involved at the end of the story. But he also like drops that was a big surprise, I think, at the end because I kind of figured there's something might be going on if you keep doing this enough, you know, whatnot. But he kind of drops a uh, you know a hint to Tessua what's going on. But it was a great, solid issue, a lot of action. You get a lot of, uh, like I said, all these different little stories coming together finally. And when I first read the story, I was confused because the timelines were so weird. But now that we're at issue 10, I just kind of go with them. Like, oh, I, I know I got the, got the flow of how they write the story now. So it's really entertaining. And I, I want more because, like I said, this issue just kind of brought it all together. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the time stamps of, hey, they're in this year, they're in that year, whatever. It's more like those are there 
in my mind for subsequent readings. Cause you kind of can just not, I mean, I don't even really pay attention to what year it is. You know, you just, just read the story as if everything's happening in, in present time because they hop around so much that it's whatever time you're in is sort of inconsequential. And that in a lot of ways, unless, you know, they're specifically, Oh, this person went back in time to hide out because they were being hunted by the mob or whatever. Um, but you get that through the context of the story. You don't necessarily need to look at, oh, look, it's 2049 or whatever. But it all goes back to the idea that what we were told in the very first issue, where you can't change things. So because you can't change things, you know, you just think of each time like as a different city in a way. Um, and each time has a little bit of a different plot thread that's going on. So, yeah, it's a, it's an ambitious project. It's another one of those that while I'm enjoying it, like along the way, I think when it's all said and done and finished, I do subsequent readings, it'll pay off even more. Well, the big thing I, I took from this too is like, it's funny how the mafia <laughs> is controlling time, but yet they're making sure their weaponry does not go on time streams, that they keep it in their in the right time zones. Like, yep. you know, you won't see a laser back in the 1700s. They don't do that. They're, they're smart about it. But if the government ran it, it'd be all screwed up. I'm just throwing it oh, out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. hundred percent. Uh, okay, next book for me is Rain Number Two. This is from writer David Boer. The art is by Chloe, or sorry, Zoe Thorogood. And I'm sorry, I'm just looking for the credits here. Uh, and I should say it's based on a story uh, from Joe Hill. And colors by Chris O'Halloran, letters by Sean Lee. So if you're not familiar with the story of Rain, uh, I think it was a novella or a short story written by joe hill where one day it starts raining these crystal nails like um there and it has does have some basis in fact not that it's ever rained like four inch crystal nails but there is um at times there's been these like crystallized structures that have caused damage that have fallen from the sky and it has to do with sediment that um is brought up in, in water as it evaporates from the ocean. And then it solidifies due to lightning strikes at very high altitudes. And so, I mean, we all know what happens when lightning hits sand, right? Or if you don't know, it turns it into glass in a way. There's even some guys that make art by planting lightning rods in like wide open fields in the desert where it's this uh, really clean type of sand. And the, the, uh, the heat of the lightning will go down and create these fantastically intricate sculptures of sand because it turns it into glass and then you dig it out and you turn it over and it, it almost looks like a tree with all the different branches of, of lightning that have solidified into glass because it's melted the, uh, the sand. So the, like I said, there's a basis, scientific basis in reality for these crystals falling from, from the sky. Now that being said, <laughs> they don't fall in, anywhere near as much as they do in the first issue of the story. They certainly don't fall for the amount of time. I think it was like 40 seconds or something like that, where these nails, crystal nails fell from the sky and it killed 8,000 people in Boulder, Colorado in the story. And that's what happens in the first issue. And the main character, honey suckle speck is her name. Uh, her girlfriend and her girlfriend's mother get caught out in this storm of nails, crystal nails falling from the sky and they die. And so the story is about Honeysuckle trying to get to Denver uh, to tell her boyfriend or her girlfriend's father 
about her, the death of, of the girlfriend's mother and the girlfriend. So what happens when she's out on the road and it starts raining nails again because the phenomenon spreading, it's about the journey. It's about love. It's about a lot of different aspects. Now, when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, I've never read that story from Joe Hill. I want to go read the novella. I want to know. But then I was like, oh, wait, but David Boer is doing a, a comic of it. I, I don't want to know what's coming. <laughs> I want to be able to read and enjoy and experience the comic. So I'm going to read the story from Joe Hill, but I want to read the comic adaption first because I know David Boer is a big fan of the story. So is uh, the artist um, Zoe Thorogood. So I'm going to read the story first, and then I'm going to go and read the novel and see how uh, see how, where the differences lie and whatnot. So in the second, I can't, I can't really talk about the story more than that. In the second issue, I'll just say that Honeysuckle meets up with somebody who's going to uh, go on the journey with her for reasons. Um, and it, it feels, it feels like a very emotional story. Uh, there's a lot of tragedy, but a lot of emotion in terms of love. I mean, Honeysuckle's doing this out of love. Her, um, her girlfriend's father may be all, sort of all she has left of her girlfriend, but you also wonder, you know, she tries calling him several times. He doesn't answer. goes to voicemail. Is he dead already? As far as we know, the nails haven't fallen outside of Boulder yet, but we know the phenomenon is spreading. So we'll see how it all plays out, but fantastic story. Great art by Zoe Thorogood. Um, not, not, you know, you hear Joe Hill and you think horror, this isn't, Oh my God, this is super scary. It's a, it's a human story in a lot of ways. So I do recommend it. Uh, all right. I saved it for last Jay. Cause it's your favorite. <laughs> it's your book of the week. Um, just remember that we had Elliot Kalin on at the beginning of the week, everybody, Aftershock Monday. We talked about this book, spoiler free. Elliot talked about the bucket list place he got to take Harry at the end of this issue. We're not going to spoil it because you need to go out and buy it and figure out what iconic New York place it is on your own. But man, did it put a big smile on my face when I read it. Oh yeah, great story. I, I think the reason I like the story so much is because the artwork is amazing. Um, the characters are fascinating. Um, it just it's so well put together. From the like, we know Harry's in the, in the high school, or the school, you know, tearing up the school right now. So in this one, we have uh, Green and Zelda. They're working together again to face Harry. And then we also have the little girl from the first series, Lena, that knows something about. Uh, like a, she noticed something about Harry. She's got a little secret. She's trying to tell, trying to get to uh, Green to tell her something, but that's part of the story too. So there's like a little sub stories in the story, which is kind of cool. You're right. Um, it's pretty much hack and slashing through the whole school. You got the uh, cops trying to do their thing, the mayor trying to do their thing, and it's just a big mess. Uh, it doesn't go as well as planned. And, you know, at the very end is the best part because, you know, Harry somehow makes his way to an iconic place, like you said. And when I saw it, I was just like, oh, my God, because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I've been in New York and I've been everywhere in New York. And uh, oh, my God. So it's just amazing how they how they did that. I was like, that's pretty slick. I appreciate it. I guess that's why I like the story so much, because uh, when I lived in New, I was stationed in New Jersey, I used to go to New York every week and almost for like like three years. I, I love that town. Not now. It's not safe. But at that time when I was there, it was it was a blast. 
Yeah, definitely not safe with Harry roaming around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't really have much else to add uh, other than yeah. go, li- go listen to our chat or my chat with Elliot Kalen because it, it was a lot of fun. And, yeah, we love the series. Um, and speaking of how much we love the series, did you get your custom Funko pop in yet from? Oh, no, no. Andre? He's uh He's still, uh, he's got all the uh, supplies. He told me he's doing it right now. So it'll gotcha. be a while, but that's okay. When I get him, I'll definitely show you. Yeah. I'm yeah. looking for, that's like another treat. So I'm excited about that too. Yeah. Uh, so for those that don't know, uh, Andrea Moody does like custom Funko pops of, uh, I don't know what he uses for his base, but he basically buys a Funko and turns it into maniac Harry. Uh, and Jay was able to procure one along with a bunny mask one as well. Oh, so, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I can't wait to see those up close. Uh, okay. On to my last book. It is uh, 10 lives of Wolverine or X lives of Wolverine. I never know which, which way I'm supposed to pronounce it uh, from writer, Benjamin Percy, Joshua Kassara is the artist, Frank Martin on colors, Corey Petit on letters. Um, yeah. I've talked about this before. Basically, Omega Red is jumping through time, trying to either kill Professor Xavier or kill Professor Xavier's ancestors so that Professor X is never born. It's an interesting take. I mean, I would think that you you wouldn't want to do that because that's going to stop Krokoa from becoming and the mutant ancient from becoming. But Omega Red kind of doesn't care. He's pissed off that um, they they reincarnated him like they they resurrected him like they the the mutants have been doing for a lot of other mutants that have been dead for a long time, but they knew about the device that the Russians had implanted in Omega red, that thing that makes him uh, dependent on absorbing other people's life forces. And they had a chance to, when they brought him back to life to leave that out, but they left it in and Omega reds pissed off about that. Cause he's like, man, you guys, you, you left it in as a way to control me. And you could have left it out. And so he's mad and he wants revenge. And so he's he's going through time. We're not exactly sure how he's doing it, how he's traveling through time, trying to kill Professor X at all these different uh, moments. But we know that through the use of Cerebro, that Wolverine is is jumping around following, following him. But Wolverine's doing it a different way. Wolverine's doing it quantum leap style. And what I mean by that is he's he's leaping into his own self whoever he was at that moment, whoever Wolverine was. So sometimes he's got the bone claws. Sometimes he doesn't, you know, sometimes he's old and all jacked up. Sometimes he's super young. So it just, it just depends on where his, he is, you know, where his body is, where he is at, at a stage of his life at that moment. And he's still, he's seen all these iconic moments in his life that we know Wolverine's life has been filled with tragedy. So he jumps into that body at that time with the knowledge that he has now. And he's like, Oh, I can fix this. I can fix what, you know, quantum leap. I can fit. I can put right what once went wrong, but he can't because he can't take the time to f- try to fix things or save people that he couldn't save because he's got to go s- save professor X. You know, sometimes he, he jumps into his body and he's thousands of miles away and he's got to get there quick because Omega red is hunting. So it's a, uh, it's a fantastic story. It's a lot of fun. The Jonathan Kassar art or uh, Joshua Kassar art is really, really fantastic. And uh, Omega Red jumping into, he's jumping into bodies as well. Um, sometimes allies, sometimes animals. Did you, have you been reading this at all, Jay? Yes, I do. It's, it's a pretty good story. Yeah. So at one point, 
Omega Red jumps into this ancestor of Charles Xavier, who's on a like a, a some sort of ship, like a galleon ship. Um, and Omega Red's like jumping around between crew members, and then he jumps into an animal. Um, <laughs> and as I was like, "What are you?" Can and and you can we we as the reader know that Omega Red has possessed something because the Omega symbol will appear on the forehead of whatever he's jumped into. I would say. The Omega red symbol, or the the, uh, oh, the the Greek alphabet letter Omega would appear on the forehead of any human that Omega red jumps into. But like I said, he jumps into an animal in this one as well. And what I mean, it's just like I saw that. And I was like, are you kidding me? That's crazy. So, <laughs> yeah, it was it brought a smile to my face. It was a lot of fun. So, again, I, I'll mention it one more time that we've been told that just like house of X and powers of 10 brought forth the first age of um, uh, the first Krakoan age for the X-Men. We've been told that this uh, 10 lives of Wolverine and 10 deaths of Wolverine are going to usher in the second age of Krakoa. So I find that to be kind of interesting because as important as Wolverine is to the X-Men, I mean, he's not somebody I would think, you know, is formative in terms of the foundation. But I suppose you could say, well, this 10 lives of Wolverine story is more. Yeah, Wolverine is a big part of it. But is it a Professor X story? Is that the way like w- what happens to Professor X in this story is what leads into the second age? And with 10 deaths of Wolverine, which Wolverine hasn't even hardly been in that series yet. It's about Moira so far. And she's super important to the Krakoan age because you know she's the reason the Krakoan age exists. So maybe it's more about what happens with Moira and Professor X that allows these books to lead into the second age. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, all right, let me give a rundown on some other books that uh, are out today. Uh, there's something from Ablaze, but I'll let Jay tell you about that. Uh, we talked about the two Aftershock books from AWA Studios. I'll mention Knighted, number four of six. That's Mark Teixeira's uh, series over there. Over at Boom Studios, the second issue of Angel number two of eight. That's Angel from the Buffy series. The reason I mention it's written by Christopher Cantwell. He's a fantastic artist and he's a big fan of Buffy. So you know that's going to be good. House of Slaughter number three gets a second printing from uh, Boom Studios as well. That's uh, James Tynan book. Don't forget that all of the DC books are in our DC Spotlight that comes out on Tuesday. And remember that the DC spotlights do have spoilers. So the books we talked about on yesterday's DC spotlight, Aquaman, the becoming number six of six, Batman, the night number two of 10 detective comics, number 1053 flash number 779 green lantern, number 11 uh, justice league, number 72, which was actually supposed to come out last week. So that's on last week's DC spotlight. If you're curious about our thoughts, uh, Nightwing number 89, We also have Nubia and the Amazons, number five of six from uh, Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala. Uh, Robbins, number four, which I didn't give that great of a review in the the episode when we recorded it, but I reread it after, and I I think I sold it a little short. I think that Robbins series is better than I I first thought. Uh, We also have the final issue of Suicide Squad, King Shark, which has a lot of heart and was a lot of fun. Uh, The final issue of Super... Girl, Woman of Tomorrow, number eight of eight from Tom King and Bilkus Evely. That was a fantastic series. 
And then uh, Wonder Woman number 784, just like Justice League, we actually talked about that last week because I got pushed a week, but we'd already uh, talked about it. Uh, all right, over at uh, IDW, I want to mention Canto number th- uh, Canto 3, Lionhearted number 6 of 6 brings that latest Canto series to a close. And then at Image, in addition to the books that we talked about, we have Echo Land's Raw Cut Edition number 6. Uh, that Echo Land series has been fantastic, and we're going to have J.H. Williams on to t- uh, talk about it in detail uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, King Spawn number seven is also out, and then uh, Walking Dead Deluxe number 33, and What's the Furthest Place from Here number four from Matthew Rosenberg and Tyler Boss. Uh, over at Marvel, in addition to the books that we talked about, we had uh, King Conan number three of six, Marvel Voices Legacy number one. Thor, number 22, from Donny Cates, Venom, number five, and uh, X-Men, number eight. And I think that's it. Oh, Shadow Man, number six, from uh, from Valiant. So uh, I know you have at least uh, one other book, probably more than that, Jay, that you want to mention. Oh, yeah, you're talking about a blaze, you're talking about Animal Castle, number three comes out. And yep. it's been a fun book. Uh, it's brutal. It's just animals, like if they have like human like traits, it's just terrible. A lot of backstabbing going goes on in the story about power, uh, but the artwork is uh, is beautiful. It's by Felix uh, Deleep and the writer Xavier Doris. It's a good book if you want a, something fun and different, and if you're a fan of uh, uh, Animal Farm, uh, pick up this book. It's really good. Yeah, that book's uh, blowing up. It's getting really popular. Oh yeah, uh, from IDW we got that GI Joe Real American Hero Saturday Morning Adventures number one comes out. I guess it's gonna be a three four issue miniseries, but I was a big fan of GI Joe as a kid, so I'm looking forward to this. See how they do it. You read the and regular then, GI Joe series from IDW? Oh yeah, I, I I got the original Marvel series, and that, what I like about it is that numbers continue with IDW, so the numbers yeah. just kept going. So I, yeah. I love that. Um, another one that I want to talk about is Behemoth Comics. It's Quad Number One. It's set in the future where technology was destroyed by a solar storm, so there's no more. Uh, it's just everybody's back to being you know the, the old days with no technology, but it's slowly starting to come back. So we got uh, the main character is. Uh, Tara, she's a mechanic, and her sidekick is a little black cat named Elvis. So this is the uh, future, so I don't know if the cat can talk or whatnot, but it seems kind of fun, so I'm gonna, I'm definitely going to mention that. I'm going to pick it up. Yeah, it looks interesting. And the yeah, writer... I also, saw, I also saw from Behemoth Until My Knuckles Bleed number one, which I don't know anything about, but I just like that I... That's a great... Um, that's a great title for a book. Until oh, yeah. I think we talked about it last week. But, yeah, it's the same guy that wrote uh, Polar. And it was a Netflix uh, movie. Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it, was, it was a good book. So I'm looking, I'm, that's on my pull list as well. <laughs> cool. That's Anything all I else? got. Uh, okay. I think that's it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode then, everybody. Uh, we appreciate you guys joining us. As always, we wouldn't do it if you weren't there listening. So uh, thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. 
Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.